Morning, everybody. I want to thank you for being here. My name's Austin. I'm one of the pastors here at LifePoint. I know you could be at home in the middle of a turkey coma right now. Thanks for hanging out this morning. Glad that you're here. Uh, this morning, we're going to finish the, the second half of a two-part teaching series that we just call Grateful. And what we've really been looking at is what it looks like, what it feels like, what it could even be like to be men and women who, no matter what life brings our way, are marked by gratitude, marked by thankfulness, marked by life, our lives that in the ups and in the downs find the moments and the things and the items in our lives worth being grateful for no matter what. And, and the question I really want to press into a little more closely today as we just kind of take this one step further is this. How can we be thankful? How can we be grateful even when we find nothing in the immediate to be grateful for? And I believe that God desires for you today and for me today to take on a task that may seem absolutely impossible, that to be able to grab a hold of the heart of gratitude found in somewhere different than we normally go to find it and live our lives with consistency in a way that looks back to God no matter what we find and says, God, I am thankful. That's a big bill to fill. And so um, I, I just want to pause. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for me because, because I really believe this. If, if this becomes part of who we are, like if we catch even like 75% of this, the potential to revolutionize every fabric of our lives is huge. And so we need to go to God with a request like that. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you brought us here to this moment, that there are lives that we've lived up to this point, and your faithfulness is overwhelming from the very beginning until now. And so, God, I ask you to do something that we can't take credit for this morning. Would you send us your Holy Spirit? God, would you fill us with wisdom? God, would you change our hearts? Lord, we need to grow in faithfulness, we need to grow in thankfulness, we need to be more grateful. Help us to do that, because left to our own, Left to my own or myself, I don't know that I know how to do it. So do what only you can do today, God. Amen. All right, well, in high school, uh, my, my parents and I moved to Florida right after my freshman year in high school. We left Kentucky, moved to the coast of Florida. And so we're in a brand new place with brand new friends and brand new people all around us. And my parents really went out of their way to, to try and take care of us. And so they wanted us to be in a good school system. Parents, you know what that feels like? You know, because good school systems typically mean more expensive uh, prices on the exact same houses that you could have gotten in a different school system. And so they worked hard for that. And we were legitimately like on the very last like 100 feet of this school district. Like we were working real hard to get there. And so we were in a very middle class neighborhood uh, that happened to be housed within a very affluent um, school system. And that became really obvious, really present in a couple of times growing up and graduating high school, but probably none more obvious than around the age of 16. Uh, around the age of 16, I was the oldest of my friends and I got the first car. Now I should have been thankful for that. I didn't even pay for it. My parents paid that thousand dollars for the car I got. And it's amazing, it continued to go on. My parents bought me, grateful to this day, they bought me a 1991 Saturn SL1. It was the base of base of base of base models of the very first Saturn ever produced. It had black rubber bumpers. 
There was no paint. It was like an injection molded. The plastic was just like molded and made a color. They didn't bother to put clear coat or anything like that on it. It was a five-speed. Thank goodness it had air conditioning because it was hot in Florida. It had crank windows. It even came, this is like my claim to fame, it came with one rearview mirror on the driver's side. The other one, on purpose, did not exist because that saved somebody $5 somewhere, I'm sure. And for that one month that I had it when no one else had a car, you could have convinced me I was driving a Ferrari. It was the coolest car out there. It was the best car out there. I was the only friend with freedom. I was so thankful for about 35 days until my best friend at the time, Jason, got his car. Now, Jason didn't live on the edge. Jason's parents owned like three construction companies. So when Jason turned 16, he got a brand new Z28 with T-tops. All of a sudden, my Saturn's starting to feel a little different than it did but a few days beforehand. But that wasn't enough, you know. It wasn't enough, you know, to kind of put it into perspective. When Jason got the car, his dad was a big gearhead. And so immediately he bought him a cold air intake. Now, if you don't know car parts, just think a part that makes it go faster. And then it was a cat-back exhaust the same week. And then, just to add insult to injury to my Saturn, he went and bought him a brand-new set of Corvette Z06 chrome five-spoke wheels and, and road race tires. The combination cost about three times more than my car did. All of a sudden, my 14-inch hubcaps didn't seem so cool. The cloth seats that had been used by like 12 other owners didn't seem so awesome. I, I was no longer the cool guy with the freedom. I was the guy with the four-door sedan hoping he could keep up with the rest of his friends. All my other friends followed suits. There were, there were Mustangs, and there was a kid with a Corvette. Some of them had diesel trucks. I mean, there were cars... I, Cars I dream about like in retirement one day. Like, hey, one day I'll own what my 16-year-old friend had. That was the world I was living in. All I wanted after that point was a sports car, and I got a glimpse of hope. Driving to church one day, I'm driving down the back street. My dad loved cars as much as I did, and so I knew if I just made him think it was his idea, this car I saw on the way to church, he would sell mine and go buy it. And so I started kind of wheeling and dealing and painting this picture for my dad, and eventually he thought it was a good idea. So we sold my reliable but slow 1991 Saturn SL1 with one rear mirror. For the exact same price that I bought my new, very proud to own, 40,000 mile 1987 Pontiac Fiero. Anybody remember the Fiero? Yeah, you probably knew, know now what I wish I would have known then. The Fiero looked awesome. It was supposed to be a V8 when they made it, but the people at Corvette said, if you do that, no one will buy it. So put this garbage, in it, a garbage engine in it instead, and we'll sell it really cheap to everybody else. It's what I got. And I drove it, and for the first month, yet again, I found myself incredibly grateful. I had a sports car. It was two-seater. It looked at least sort of like everybody else's car. It just was nowhere near as fast. But about a month in, I realized there was a reason that 1987 car had 40,000 miles on it. It passed everything except a mechanic shop. First, it was the clutch. Then it was the shifting cables. Then it was something with the spark plugs. And then the alternator went out. And, and I remember the thing that kind of gave it all away for me is I was on a date. And I was out with this girl. It was a five-speed. And the alternator went out. And the battery was done. And I had to have this girl push my car <laughs> while I sat in it so that I could drop the clutch and get the car going. It was my last date with the girl, and it was the last straw for the Fiero. My parents sold that and bought me, get this, a 1992 Saturn SL1. 
I was back, baby. Here's the thing, though. It's pretty funny, the highs and lows of like high school pecking order. I mean, I, I just kind of rode the waves there. But, but here's the reality for my life. And it may be, maybe, maybe you're better than me, but, but maybe it's like your life at times too. When it comes to gratefulness and thankfulness, we kind of feel pulled in this back and forth experience where we can identify things or, or, or moments or times in our lives Maybe it's items that we receive that in the beginning, we're so thankful for them. And yet somewhere along the way, we find ourselves disappointed or frustrated or let down. Hey, anybody remember the MC Hammer Pants? Come on, anybody? Come on, give me some hands. Anybody willing to say I owned a pair of MC Hammer Pants? That's right. You were proud when you owned those pants. Now, none of you guys know what that is here on the front row. They were just ugly pants, so just hold on to that. And everyone thought they were cool. And all you three who were honest enough to say that you owned a pair of those pants, you were, you know, can't touch this? I know you knew what you were doing. You were can't touching this all over the place until reality said, and then some smart person said, those are the ugliest pants I have ever seen. Now you're burning entire photo albums to destroy the proof. Also, front row, photo albums are an archaic way for cataloging pictures where you literally print them and put them in binders, all right? Just so we're cool. Maybe you've experienced this other kind of up and down, letdown. Anybody remember the BlackBerry phone? Cutting edge technology for about five seconds until Apple dominated the phone market and everyone realized these things, the keys on them, they're made out of like microscopic pieces of rice. I mean, you've got to have 20-20 vision and glasses to read this. You think car pileups are bad because of texting today. Can you imagine if we all had Blackberries? And all of a sudden, the thing that we were very grateful for became old, passe kind of information. We were grateful in one moment, and we regretted having it the next. Rogaine? Total letdown. Let's just leave it right there. But maybe for you, you bought the dream house and had the perfect kitchen, and had the perfect bathrooms and the extra space for mom, dad, and the other people to come and visit, and it had those floors you were always dreaming of. I mean, everything about it was the dream house until one day you realized it didn't actually fit in your very real budget. Now you got bills that you can't pay or a mortgage you don't know how you're going to make. And the thing that we once began so thankful for becomes a decision that we completely regret. Anybody been there? About a few of those in my time. Maybe it's the relationship. Everybody else warned you about them and you said, you're just wrong. They're going to love me. They're going to care for me. They're there for me. And the relationship, the person that, that, that shared experience was going to be the one that made everything right. And yet along the way, you find someone who, who abandoned you or they abused you or didn't treat you the way that you should have been treated. And what began with gratitude ended in, in disappointment or worse. See, whether it's simple or complex, superficial or critical, all of us understand the ebb and the flow between gratefulness and disappointment, between thankfulness and frustration. And here's the question. If you forget everything else, here's the question that I pray God is messing with you to answer this morning. Here it is. Is this how life should be? It's back and forth, this up and down, this thankful and, and, and terrified 
Even better, maybe the better way to ask that is this. Is this the life God actually intended for us? And the answer we find from the very beginning of the pages of Scripture to this very day in history again and again and again is no, God designed you the same way God designed me for something more, for something better, for something beyond the back and forth. In the book of Luke chapter 22, Jesus hands down to us this practice that that was ages old by that time. But he hands down this practice to us that we've continued to hand down for generations. As a matter of fact, at the end of service, we're going to participate in it together again. It's a practice called communion or the Lord's Supper or or the Eucharist. And he gives us the secret and begins to unpack how you and I can live lives, whether at our best or in life's worst, that are defined by thankfulness. Check out what he says, beginning of verse 7 and 8, and then on to 14 through 16. He says this, Now the festival of unleavened bread arrived. And when the Passover lamb was sacrificed, Jesus sent Peter and John ahead and said, Go and prepare the Passover meal so we can eat it together. And when the time came, Jesus and the, disciples, or and the apostles sat down together at the table, and Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And see, what what we see happening here is a traditional meal, something that they would probably done together three or four times by this point. But as they share this meal, this particular day, Jesus knows something that no one else knows. And he's kind of trying to prepare them for something that's about to happen. Everything in these men's lives were about to change. Up until this point, they've been students of a very famous teacher. But they were about to become accomplices and convicts. Up until this point, they'd been the healer's helper, seen incredible things happen and got to come along for the celebration and the show. But in just a few pages, we find that they're no longer heroes, they're outcasts and outlaws. A few chapters later, Jesus is arrested, the disciples are on the run, one commits suicide, and when it comes to their future, they have nothing but questions. And Jesus takes this one meal, this one moment, this one practice, and leverages it to prepare them to be thankful no matter what the things they may experience. And they weren't all easy. And if you're like me, the skeptic inside of me goes, how? Like, how is that even possible? How could that ever be the case? How could anyone do what these men were about to do? How could they watch what happened to Jesus and remain thankful for it? But Jesus gives us a roadmap. And to the best of our ability, we've tried to form that into a bit of what we call a big idea. It's the statement that if you forget everything else, write it down, remember it. It may impact your week. Here's what it says. When I remember what God has done, I can thank him for what he will do. When I remember what God has done, I can thank him for what he will do. Now, depending on your circumstances, that might seem impossible. It may seem like a bit of a stretch, but here's what I'm asking you. Hang on for just a few minutes because what Jesus gives us over the next few minutes is so big that it could change your day. It might change your week. It could change everything about your life. So check out what he says. At the beginning of verse 17 We're going to go on through verse 20. He says this, Then he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. 
Then he said, take this and share it among yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. Then he took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. And he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance. Everybody say remembrance. In remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup of wine and he said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. That means you. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Essentially, what Jesus does is look into the eyes of his followers who he knew were about to face some really tough times. And he says, look, when you don't have hope, when you got nothing else to hold on to, when everything else falls apart, remain thankful. And here's how you do it. Start by looking back. See, the meal they were having was not a new one. This wasn't like, hey, let's come over and see what you know, the disciples are going to cook up this week. This was like the meal we all just shared back on Thursday. It happened once a year. It was a big deal. And you went through long extremes to make sure it was perfect. It was a tradition. And the whole purpose of the tradition and every aspect of the meal was to help Jewish men and women remember an event in their history. Everything was always in order. It was kind of like in your family meals, if they're like my family meals, there's always the same kind of food that shows up. If you come to any Christmas or Thanksgiving meal, it's the same spread at my house. Here's what, here's what we eat. Turkey, ham, broccoli casserole, which is just broccoli with a whole lot of cheese, mashed potatoes, sweet potato souffle, which is just sweet potatoes with a whole lot of butter and sugar. Um, there's corn casserole, and there's rolls. There's a reason my family has a weight problem. It is not genetic. And every once in a while, you've had that experience where an aunt or an uncle or somebody gets married and they show up and they bring something different. One of two things happens when somebody brings something different. Either it is a total flop and no one eats it and it never comes back again. You pretend that person never showed up that year. Or, or it becomes a fan favorite and everyone's making it by the next year. It shows up at everyone's house. But in the Passover meal, this meal, these men were sharing. There was no room for new. There was a script to follow. You did not deviate. Every word, every moment, everything that they drank and everything that they ate came with a very specific, specific significance and symbolism that pointed back to the day when God took his people out of Egypt. Where Jewish men and women who had been slaves for 400 years finally sought fulfillment of a promise to have freedom and God worked out their freedom in absolutely impossible ways. Everything pointed back to that moment. And yet what Jesus does here is unprecedented because he changes the script. For 1,400 years, people had the same meal with the same food and said the same things. And Jesus, for the very first time, turns everything around and he tells them, don't remember any longer just about Moses or freedom from slavery. Now remember me because I'm about to free you from something far more deadly than the pain of bondage. He asked them now to remember him in Jesus' eyes and in the, the truth of all of time. What we find is Jesus was asking them to remember of something, so, of something, something of so much greater significance it wasn't even funny. 
As a matter of fact, what we kind of get the picture of is it might be dangerous for them to forget. See, the path ahead for these men was complex. They were about to start this thing called the church that seems normal to us but didn't exist back then. They were about to become social outcasts. They were going to be disowned by their families. Most would be persecuted. Several would be martyred. And what they told people at the expense of their own lives would spread and encompass the entire known world. It was not an easy task, and it didn't happen easily, and it cost them greatly. And as Jesus helped them remember, remembering helped them press on. When things looked impossible... Remembering Jesus helped them realize the power they had access to. Remember who they'd walked with. It was that very same Jesus who who, who healed blind men and women, born blind, and sent them off seeing everything they had never seen before in their lives. It was Jesus who, who gave the ability to hear to deaf people. It was Jesus who brought healing to those with infirmities that left them, you know, ostracized from society. It was Jesus who reached out and touched a man who had been paralyzed his entire life and sent him running home. It was Jesus who raised the dead, a man like Lazarus. So Rome wants our heads on a platter. Let me just pause for a second and remember, I think I I serve a God who can handle that. See, remembering has massive implications for our lives. It changed everything for their lives. How could they ever resign in fear or bitterness or disappointment when they had seen so much along the way? See, remembering is where Jesus, or is how Jesus helps us get perspective in today by reminding us of where we were before. For me, so often it becomes important to remember where Jesus has brought me from to understand exactly where I stand right now. I remember where God's taken me. I remember God taking a self-centered college kid who didn't care anything about anyone but himself and pulling him up and giving him life purpose, giving his life purpose. I remember when he did that for me. I remember when Jesus broke a cycle of bad relationship after bad relationship after bad relationship left me single just long enough to meet a woman who was light years out of my league. Somehow doped that woman into marrying me. (laughs) I remember spending 10 years praying that God would give us a son or a daughter. Every state that we lived in, we tried another agency. We did another thing, and we prayed again and again and again, and then we just seemed to move right before anything could ever possibly happen. And then seemingly out of nowhere, we had no agency. We were doing nothing about it ourselves. We were just sitting back, not doing a whole lot. We get a phone call from a random person a thousand miles away who said she heard from a friend of a friend of a friend that maybe we might adopt their son. See, when I look back, I recognize that God has never been absent from my life. Even when things felt terrible, God was still there. He remained faithful. And when we look back, we are able to see the power and the provision and the presence of a God who is so often overlooked in the immediate. And whether you recognize it or not, you are here today. There is breath in your lungs and you have a hope for your future because there is a good and loving and a powerful Savior who has stood faithfully beside you for all of your years. And no matter what you face today, that is reason to be thankful. See, when I remember what God has done, as our big idea says, when I remember what God has done, I can thank him for what he will do. 
But Jesus didn't help the disciples look back just to leave them there. It's important to, to acknowledge that. Jesus actually pointed them forward and asked them to do a, an even more difficult thing, asked them to look ahead. See, Jesus wasn't escaping the present by dreaming about the future. Oh, one day everything will just be fine. That wasn't what he said. Jesus was helping them remain are thankful in the present by understanding what would be possible because of what he was doing. Jesus was very sober about the realities he was about to face. It was going to cost his life. It was going to cost some torture. It was going to cost all the things that made everyone around him comfortable. Jesus never denied this. He embraced it, but he looked beyond it to something else that had been promised. Check out how he talks about this. Verses 14 through 18. Now, I may have messed up the order here, so if it's not on the slide, that's my fault. Just, just know that. It says this, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until, everybody say until. I won't eat this meal again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. And he said, take this and share it amongst yourself. For I will not drink wine again until, say until, until the kingdom of God has come. See, Jesus is modeling for these men something so powerful, yet so difficult to do. Everything that he embraced, the suffering, the cross, the, the shame, all that stuff. He said, look, this is real, but something else is coming. He refused to stay paralyzed in the moment. He remained thankful for what had not even happened yet. This is why looking back is so vital for us. It's a vital first step because it helps us establish for God a track record from our past of what we can expect of him in our future. See, faith, as we talk about it within the church, is never really blind faith. Faith is always established by God's faithfulness. God never goes, hey, just, just buy it, okay? Just go for it. He always points us back to his faithfulness over time, his consistency over time, his unfailing love over time. He goes, hey, if I did it then, I can do it later. What he actually calls us to is a life beyond most of what most of humanity ever experiences. It's being thankfully confident of not what we experience now, but thankfully confident of what we know God can do for us down the road. It's what... Um, it's what David wrote about in Psalms. He says this, I remain confident of this. Say confident. There you go. You need to, you need to say that with more confidence. Let's say confident. There we go. We're going to roll with this. I remain confident of this, that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of living. You know when he wrote this? He was on the run from a king that he'd given his life to serve. He'd done nothing wrong. Yet the man out of jealousy pursued his life day after day after day. There was an army on his tail. And yet David looks at this moment and goes, you know what? I can look back over my entire life. God has built a very strong case for his goodness and his faithfulness. And I refuse to be miserable today. I'm going to be thankful for what God's going to do for me tomorrow. I remain faith or confident of this, that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Here and today, you may be here and you're doubting that God will ever show up for you. You may be in the middle of a health problem. You may be in the middle of some kind of financial crisis. You may not know how to piece the pieces of your marriage back together, but God wants you to know that you can remain confident 
that his goodness will not waver. You can remain confident that he will not walk away from you. You can remain confident for tomorrow because God will never change. He will never leave you. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We kind of get a picture of something I never really understood as a kid. Paul talks about this. It's just crazy. He says this, I'm convinced. Again, he's convinced. I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, neither angels or demons, neither fears for today or worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky, above or on earth, below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, if we just pause long enough, long enough to look back and observe God's faithfulness, even if you don't believe in him today, you can see evidence of his faithfulness in your past. You can look confidently ahead with the boldness that David knew, with the boldness that Paul understood, with the boldness that Jesus was doing everything in his power to pass on to these disciples, being thankful for what had been and remaining faithful for what would be. So that's a powerful kind of thing, a powerful kind of thankfulness. Because for the first time in all of time, it doesn't rest on today, does it? Today may be great, but I'm thankful about tomorrow. I'm thankful for what has been. Today may be rotten, but there's a better day coming, and I know God's been faithful in my past. I can count on it. One more time, our big idea. When I remember what God has done, I can thank him for what he will do. So maybe today you've gotten forgetful. And in a minute, we're going to give you an opportunity to remember. And I just ask you to do this. Maybe you want to pause and just spend some time before we share communion together and think, God, where have you shown up? Was it in elementary school? Was it when I was a child? Was it in my teenage years? Was it in college? Was it in my early adulthood? Where is it in my life, God, that you've shown up? He'll tell you. He'll make it clear to you. Spend a moment and remember the bold faithfulness of God and be thankful for it. Maybe for you today, you're looking ahead at something you don't know how to accomplish on your own. There's an obstacle, there's a, there's a thing that you don't know how to work through. And what God is saying to you today is, look, I was good to you then. Don't you think for a moment I won't be good to you now. You can look towards your future with absolute certainty, confidence that God is still with you. He is still for you. And maybe today, maybe you came in here hoping God would make himself known to you. And you just need to pause and ask him, Lord, where have you been in my life? Because I promise you, gone is not the answer. Somewhere else is not the answer. He has stood by you. He created you. He knows you. And he loves you. Let me pray. And then we're going to share in a time of communion together. Lord, thank you. Maybe in a bigger way right now than I would have said it yesterday. Thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness in my past. Thank you that I can trust you in my future. And today, God, I just ask for my friends who've grown forgetful. Even now, through the whispers of your Holy Spirit, would you bring to mind those times when you showed up, when no one else would, when nothing else could account for it, when you were good to them? And bring to our hearts, even right now, thankfulness. And I pray for those of us that are looking ahead and we don't know what to do. 
God, give us the confidence of David and Paul. Help us to be confident in your goodness and thankful for what we can expect from your character. And God, for those of us searching, looking, hoping that you would just show up, Lord, would somehow, in a miraculous way, would you confirm in our hearts that you see us, that you have heard us, that you have remained beside us and help us today to place our confidence in you. Amen.